again. Um, how do you respond to Christmas? How do you respond to the season? How do you respond to Christmas year in and year out? Do you get sucked in and as much as you're like, I'm not going to do it this year. Stuff, shopping, presents, stuff, shopping, presents. How do you respond to Christmas? Is it enter survival mode and get through office parties and school parties and school events and uh, church events and get through the busyness of the season? How do you respond to Christmas? Maybe it returns you to a very sentimental time. And there's a lot of memory and a lot of tradition and a lot of seasonal kind of things that, that are attached into it. How do you respond to Christmas? We're going to look through the Christmas story today and look at the responses people had. And I hope what you find is the past the stuff and past certainly survival mode and past tradition and sentimentality is worship. And that the fundamental response of Christmas is joy-filled worship. Uh, so we've been preparing for the arrival of Jesus throughout the month of December. Uh, we started with, uh, with Isaiah 9 and that, that, uh, it was gonna be, it was prophesied. And so kind of centering on this majesty theme that majesty was prophesied. And so Isaiah 9 talked about the future coming of Messiah, the future coming of Jesus, and the, the central part of that prophecy was his kingship. He was coming to rule. He was coming to rule and the government was going to be on his shoulders and the increase of his kingdom and the increase of peace. There'd be no end. And so like there would be no limits to his domain or to his dominion, but there would also be no end in time to it. And so majesty promised. Then last week we looked at John chapter one and majesty on mission that God himself became flesh and dwelt among us, that the royal majestic king of kings, God of heaven became one of us and that bringing with him he brought life and he brought light and that that light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it and instead he offered to those who would believe in his name he offered them sonship adoption well today we're getting to the place where majesty is born and we find that jesus is born king and so let's walk through we're going to do two passages we're going to see how it goes. It's only 32 verses of like the greatest story ever told, but we're going to see how it goes. And uh, I promise you'll be out in time for Christmas. Everything will be okay. Um, and we're going to be looking at the majestic Messiah appears and demands a, a response. And so it starts out in Luke. And it was in those days that... Um, that Caesar Augustus declared a registration, right? And that registration, it was the first one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so everyone had to go back to their own town, that is their ancestral hometown, to be registered. And so Joseph went out and he left Nazareth, a city in Galilee, and he came down, that's in the northern part of the country, and he came down into uh, to Bethlehem, right, to, or to Judea, to the to the city of King David, to Bethlehem. And he he came because he was of the house and lineage of David, and he brought with him Mary, his betrothed wife, so that it, who was with child, and and they all came to be registered, right. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in that region, there were shepherds that were keeping a watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone all around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said, don't fear. Run to you, or don't fear because I bring you good news of great joy and it's for all the people. For to you has been born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then this will be the sign that, that these things are true. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then with the angel appeared a multitude of the heavenly hosts. And they were all praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and with those with whom he is pleased. And after the angels left, the shepherds like, let's go to Bethlehem and see about these things that the Lord has made known to us. And so they went with haste and they searched through Bethlehem and they found Joseph and Mary and the baby lying in a manger. And when they found him, they made known the sayings that the angels had told them. And everyone who heard about it wondered at the things that the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured them, pondering them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned and they were glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and all that they had heard, just like the angels had told them. And after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem of Judea, there were, uh, during the, the reign of King Herod, wise men came from the east. And they came to Jerusalem and they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we've come to worship him. And Herod and all of Jerusalem with him was very troubled. And Herod assembled his chief priests and his scribes, and he inquired of them, Where is the Christ to be born? And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for the prophet is written, And you, O Bethlehem. In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod summoned the wise men and he ascertained, summoned them secretly and he ascertained, when did this happen? When did you see the star? And then he said, when you, why don't you go find him and search diligently for him? And when you found him, come bring me back word so that I too can come and worship him. And when they had finished speaking with the king, they left uh, from there. After listening to the king, they left and they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose came and rested over the place where Jesus was, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the place and they found Joseph and Mary and the, and, and the child who was with them. And they fell down before him. And worshipped. And then offered them their treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by a different way. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for this story to get too familiar And not bring us great joy anymore. As those who have this book, this gospel. To not rejoice exceedingly with great joy. It's so easy for us to go through this season like we've gone through this season time and time and time before. 
and not rejoice. It's so easy to go through this season and feel the weight of the fall and feel the weight of loss or feel the weight of stress or feel the weight of busyness and have lost our joy. And it's so easy to run through this season and and buy and celebrate and do parties and not rejoice because the Savior is born. And so I pray that this old story would be a fresh story upon our hearts. And that joy would flow again. Fresh joy would flow again from this story, from this birth and all that it means for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the majestic Messiah demands a response, was born and demands, appears and demands a response. The majestic Messiah appears and demands a response. And so there's so many different angles we can cover in these stories. And we've been together six years, so you've probably heard me cover most of them. It's all right. I don't have a novel one. I don't have anything new. I'm going to hopefully just be simple and straightforward. But the angle as I was studying and reading through these passages again this year, uh, the angle that I saw is that everybody that encountered Jesus, everybody encountered this birth, had a response to him. And they didn't just have a little response. Everybody that encountered Jesus, everybody that saw this baby had a great, a tremendous response. Whether it be Herod and their troubled, turning into rage and murderous bloodlust, or whether it be uh, wise men who worship, or whether it be people that are amazed and wonder, like hearing this news, like everybody had a response. And so I want to just give it very simply and show you what some of those responses are. And then press it on you, but also press it on me, uh, what our response is. And so one of the things I've really been praying for myself and I'm praying for you is that this very familiar story would be fresh to us this season. And so let's look at it. The first uh, response is not so much a response as an announcement. The angels announce good news to the glory of God. The angels announce good news to the glory of God. Now, you know, like good news comes in many sizes, right? And the size of the good news usually determines the amount of celebration attached to the good news, right? And so, good news, you got to raise. Like, I am thankful every time that happens. For, because some reason, no matter how many raises I get, my bills seem to match it, and that raise gets it. So it's good news to get a raise, right? I don't usually throw a party over it, right? Good news, you got A's this semester. Right? I mean, that's great. I don't know if you throw a party. You probably don't. You got a lot of semesters, you know, to, to go through. Good news, your business was profitable this year. That's awesome. Or, good news, you graduated. And all the family comes in and there's a huge party and they have caps and gowns and, and you make a whole weekend of it, right? That's good news. Good news. She said yes. And you've got pictures and you've got this whole stage video of it and you throw a party over it and everybody comes and celebrates. Good news. She's having a baby. Right? And you have a party and you've got to post it on social media and you do a gender reveal and it's like this whole nine month party that you throw until they're here and then you have this, 
you know, another party. People bring food and relatives come in. The size of the good news usually determines the size of the celebration. Is Christmas good news? A savior to rescue you from your sin and eternal separation from God has been born. Is that good news? Does our celebration match the bigness of this good news? And it's so easy for it not to. And so I don't say that to put a weight on you. I say that because I want us to ask for a fresh joy, a fresh celebration at the good news of Christmas. Let's look at it as we walk into the text. The first eight verses or so. And this text kind of just give us a setup. How, how is Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why is Jesus born in Bethlehem? How, how do the events of the birth take place? And so a little bit of background. In the Old Testament, God made some promises to a guy named Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then he made some promises, a covenant with a guy named David. And he said, David, every future ruler who is rightful... Every future rightful ruler over my people will come from your line. And second promise, one day a forever ruler with a forever throne will take up his throne and rule over my people forever. But Isaiah broadens that out. And it is not just that he will sit on a throne of David over God's people. It is too small a thing that I should raise you up. For just the nation of Israel, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. Or as Isaiah 9 we looked at, the whole government will be upon your shoulders. And there will be no end to his kingdom. So those are the promises. And then there is also a promise made in Micah chapter 5. That this child, this Messiah from David would be born in this little town called Bethlehem. The city of David, the place where David was from. And so those are all precursors. Like if we're going to find Messiah, we are going to find him coming through the line of David. We're going to find him born in the city of David. So that's a little bit of perspective for Luke chapter 2. And so look at this, how it, how it comes about. So there's a decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. Now I want you to think about this. Roman Empire, you know, I tried to figure out how big it was. Like... Maybe four and a half million people. Maybe a lot more than that. I, I, I don't know. You try to research things in the ancient world. They didn't just give us all the information we'd like. Somewhere around that amount of people. And so when Caesar declares a, a, a census, and you have to go back to, like to your ancestral hometown, that means at least hundreds of thousands of people throughout the Roman Empire had to move around. So God, get this, God to have... One little baby from a nobody couple living in nothing Galilee in the nothing country of Israel to get him to move uh, like a day's journey from the northern part of Israel, which is a really small country, to the central part of Israel called Bethlehem. Look what God does. 
He has a pagan emperor who has no thoughts of God whatsoever, no, of, of the one true God. He has a pagan emperor flex his muscles or set attacks or whatever, move hundreds of thousands of people around the empire. So that one couple would move a half day to a day's journey south to Bethlehem. And not just that, like, oh, hundreds of thousands of people move around to get this couple to move just this little bit south to Bethlehem at just the right time. Because it was while they were there, the time came, it says, for her to give birth. And she gives birth to her firstborn son and wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in a manger because there's no place in the inn. And I know we saw these Christmas plays growing up and it's this grumpy innkeeper and he's persecuting Jesus and there's no room. No. Like there's thousands of people in this little town that don't live there who had to come back for the census. And so they're not exactly high-rise hotels in that day. And there's not exactly towns filled with hotels. Uh, Chandler and Drew just got back from Peru. Like there's probably 15 rooms available in the town that we go to. It doesn't take a lot to fill them up. And so you've got thousands of people fluxing into this little bitty country to be registered, or this little bitty town to be registered. It just fills up pretty quickly. And so he's born in a manger. Or he's, he's born in a cattle stall and he's placed in a manger, which is just a feed trough. And you think, God, you moved hundreds of thousands of people all over the empire and you, 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 did you forget? Like they needed a place to stay when they got there? I don't think God missed a detail. Or maybe, like, God, you moved hundreds of thousands of people. Did you just, you just couldn't make a room happen? I don't think it was a lack of ability either. So here's a stab at why a manger throne might make sense. For the king of all kings, the lord of all the earth. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Maybe a manger throne is the perfect place for him to be born. He is the one who will come and shepherd my people, Israel. Maybe a manger throne is the perfect kind of throne for him to be born and placed on. And he is a savior for all the people. He's not for the royal elites. He's not for the religious elites. He's not for the educated elites. He is. He's just not this just for them. He's for all people. And beginning at the lowliest, and he'll introduce himself to the lowliest, he's showing all people have a place. And so a manger throne is the perfect kind of throne for that kind of king. And now we get the angels, and it's not so much a response as it is an announcement. And they're like, okay, don't be afraid. Good news. Great joy. All the people. We get our word gospel from this this word good news. So it's good news. Christmas is good news. Jesus is good news. He's good news that sinners can be made saints. He's good news that the unrighteous get declared righteous. He's good news that those who are orphans from God are adopted into the family of God. He's good news that if you come to him, who are weary and heavy laden, he will give you rest. He's good news. And so the angels are bringing with them good news. And since it's really big good news, it elicits great 
joy. The size of the good news should determine the size of the joy and the size of the celebration. I bring you good news, and it's good news of great joy. And there should be a connection in our hearts with these things. Right? There's a connection in our heart between how deeply we see Jesus as good news and how much our hearts rejoice in the good news of Jesus. And if you find there's a disconnect between these two things, I don't say it so that you feel shame over that. If you find there's a disconnect between your what you say you believe about Jesus and your experience of joy in Jesus, then what a great time to just say, God, I need to ask for fresh joy. Because it has faded. And it's time to say, I'm going to fight for this joy. I'm going to war to get into the Word. I'm going to fill my heart with the Word and with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I'm going to fill my heart with what he's, how he lived his life and, and what he's accomplished until I experience this good news. Because man, walking around in a fallen world is a joy-killing affair if we don't fight for joy. Walking around in a sin world where we lose things. Where we just run out of gas sometimes. It's easy for joy to fade and it's also easy for our experience of God to fade. And it's a great season to remind ourselves to fight for this joy and to remind ourselves of these truths that lead to great joy. Good news, great joy for all the people. And then the good news centers on a person, this baby born to, Ma- to Mary, who is the Savior. Right? When, when the angel came to Mary and was like, you're going to name this child Jesus. Why? Because he is going to save his people from their sins. God sent a Savior. God sent a sin-bearing and sin-forgiving Savior because that's what you need. It's easy to think, okay, Jesus, peace, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, security, comfort. Like, I'll come to God, I'll come to Jesus, and I'll get these things. I'll get peace. That is not salvation. Salvation is a savior from your sins because that's what God knew you needed. Your ultimate need wasn't self-esteem. Your ultimate need wasn't education. Your ultimate need wasn't security and comfort. Your ultimate need was for somebody to take your sin and cancel it so that you could be restored to God. So that you could be adopted into the family of a holy father. So that you could be welcomed into the kingdom of a holy God. Not as slaves, outcasts, and servants who just happen to not be under his wrath anymore. But as dearly loved children. You have a savior who is Christ. The Old Testament promised one. The Old Testament anointed one. The one that promises had been made about. The one who is sent on the mission of God. And so he's the Christ. He's coming to fulfill all these promises of God. He's the, the, the Old Testament word Messiah. The New Testament word Christ. Right? He's the Messiah that was to come that was promised. He's the Messiah that will come and fulfill the purposes of God. He's anointed by God to fulfill the mission of God. And to fulfill the promises of God. He is the Christ and he is the Lord. The word Lord in, in, in uh, Greek can be sir or it can be like 
a person of rank or authority or a ruler. But also, it is the, the Greek word that is used for the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. And so, like in the Old Testament, God's called Lord, all caps, Lord, Lord. And that same word is used in the New Testament to translate that. And so, when he says Jesus is Savior Christ, Lord, what is he saying? I don't think he's saying, Sir. I don't think he's just saying somebody that should be respected because that doesn't fit the context, right? He's, he's good news. He's great joy. He's Christ. He's Savior. I think the proper trans, or proper interpretation of the word then, Lord, he's the God you've been waiting on. He's the John one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So you're meeting a savior who will save his people from his sins. You're meeting the Christ who will fulfill the promises of God. And you're meeting God himself, the Lord. And so that's the message that the angels give. And then the star, the nights filled up from, not from the brightness of one angel, but from a multitude of the angels. And look at the message. Savior's coming. Christ is coming. Lord is here. What does that mean? Glory to God. Like, what is Christmas about? Me. My forgiveness. No. Him. There's a Savior here. He's come. Glory to God. This baby shows us the greatness of God. This baby shows us the worth of God. This baby shows us all the perfections and all the fullness of God's grace. This baby is a window into the perfections of God. A Savior's born. Glory to God. The display of God, the seeing of God. Glory to God in the highest first. So Christmas is about God's glory first. Your salvation is about God's glory first. Then, with those he sets his favor on, peace. Saving peace. Reconciliation to God, peace. God's glory is first, it's primary, it's ultimate. Our good flows out of that. Our salvation, our peace with God flows out of that. And that's the angel's announcement. Salvation! But don't miss that it's for God's glory. So there's good news in a world gone mad. There's good news in our fears. There's good news in our frustration. There's good news in our sin and our temptations. A Savior's been born. The Savior's been born. The second step, the shepherds glorified God and made it known to others. Shepherds glorified God and made known to others. Now, I guess y'all were scared to cheer for this a few weeks ago, but like Georgia Southern just won a bowl game. Okay, somebody's excited about it. And it was pretty exciting, wasn't it? Did y'all watch it? Hear about it? So they go down uh, against the other team for the first time in the game, I think. They go down with like three minutes left. After kind of dominating the game, but a few plays kind of evened it out, and then they, they got ahead. Three minutes left. And then they're like, it's plenty of time for a drive, but the offense has really been sputtering in the second half. But off they start. But then hope looks pretty lost. Fourth and ten. About a minute or so left. The guy has to drop back and throw a pass. That's not his specialty. But then he scrambles, makes it like 30 yards, gets in the field goal range. And Tyler Bass kicks a game-winning field goal as time expires. Y'all are supposed to be excited by this, right? I mean, i got to get you excited about something. All right? 
And it's funny, I was watching the guy, he runs, Tyler Bass kicks the field goal, runs to the other end of the field, some poor guy, I don't know who he is, he's not dressed out, runs onto the field, like Tyler knocks him over, this guy's on his backside, finally the team catches up with him on the far end and like celebrates with him. As soon as I go on to social media, you know what social media is filled with? Hail Southern. I'm sure there's a clean version, Gata, right? Post after post after post after post. Why? Because great moments force some sort of expression from us. We can't have a great moment like that and not jump up and high five and hug the people around us. We can't have great moments like that without turning to the people in the stands around us and giving them a big hug and shouting. We can't have great moments like that without it being loud, without people knowing about it. I think that's what we see with the shepherds. When we experience the glory of God, when we experience God himself, there's no way for that to be complete until it's expressed. Until we sing, until we shout, until we clap, until we talk about it, until we have conversations about it with our friends. Because great moments, moments that impact us, are always moments that have to be shared with other people. And that's what you see happening with the shepherds. They experience the glory of God. And then they glorify God and express it to others. Let's look quickly. The shepherds are the first to get the announcement. So you've already heard this. You already know the shepherds, right? Not not a trustworthy lot, at least by common interpretation. Unclean for ceremonial purposes because of the job they do. You know, kind of poor, lower rung of society. That's them. And that is exactly who God chooses to visit. And it's kind of odd. Like, you can't come to the temple and worship by offering the animals that you raised and sold to the people to sacrifice for worship. But no admittance for you. And since Bethlehem was just a few miles away from Jerusalem, they're likely watching the very sheep that would make their way over to Jerusalem for sacrifices on the, on the, on the high days. And so these shepherds leave the sacrificial animals, some of them, to go see the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. They're going to go watch over a different Lamb. And so they seem to be the perfect candidate. And they're the lowest of the low. We'll get later to the Magi, the highest of the high. And everybody in between, like the birth announcements of Jesus, are the birth announcements that all mankind is included, from the pagan elites to the lowest of the people of Israel. And everybody in between. And so they, after the angels left, they're like, we've got to check this out. They go race in. They, they have to search for him, is what's implied by the word. They search for him, and they find this baby wrapped in a manger. And then they tell everybody about it. And so I don't know if that means they told everybody as they were searching through Bethlehem or if a crowd had formed to see this baby in a manger. I don't know, but they tell. Here's what the angels told us. And people are amazed. All the people that heard it wondered, were amazed at the news that had been told them. Except for Mary, she pondered it in her heart. And then look at it. They left glorifying and praising God. So what does it mean to glorify God? I just try to make it as simple and clean as I can. It doesn't mean to make God more glorious. God is perfectly glorious. God's glory can't be added to. It can't be taken away from. 
And so what does it mean that the shepherds glorified God? It means that they saw his glory, responded to his glory, and then displayed or reflected that glory in their response. And so to glorify is to see as glorious and then show as glorious. The shepherds saw the glorious grace of God in the face of Christ. And then they lived in a way, spoke in a way, declared in a way that showed or reflected that glory to the world. Or to the people they encountered. They left glorifying God. They left having encountered and worshipped glory to sharing glory with others. Sharing and showing this is what God is like. By the way they lived. By the way they responded. And so as we encounter Christ at Christmas, we're meant to see glory. But not like see it in a way that like, okay, yeah, we talk about this every year. Like it's meant, you're meant to encounter it. It's meant to do something to you. And then when it does something to you, you're meant to live in a way that shows it off. It's meant to change how we live. And so are you seeing and encountering? Are you reflecting? Are you showing by the way you live your life? By the way you sing your songs? By the way you hear his word? By the way you follow into the world? Third uh, response, Mary stored the events in her heart and meditated on them in wonder. Mary stored the events in her heart and meditated on them in wonder. It seems to me that one of the keys to thriving spiritually is a holy, active memory of the goodness of the Lord. Like one of the keys to you being spiritually victorious is for you to have an active living memory of what God has done in his word, what Jesus has done in his life, Revealed in his word what God has done in your own life and what God has done in your family's life and in your church family's life Like the more you can remind yourself the more you can fill your heart with what the goodness of the Lord That'll be key To surviving stabilizing conquering living victoriously So when you look at Mary Simple one word doesn't take a lot of explanation. She treasured that is she stored up in her hearts the events and the truths in the encounters she's having and pondered, meditated, wondered about these things. And so for Mary, she'd had her own angelic announcement. You're going to have God, you're, you're a virgin conception. You're going to have a baby. He's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to save his people from their sins. Like, fill your heart with that truth. You have shepherds on your birth night, giving birth night, bowing in your stable to worship the, or to praise the baby that's in front of you. Fill your heart with that. You're hearing news of angels declaring the glory of God. And the, the, the same message you have that he's the savior, he's the Christ. Fill your heart with that. Because you're going to need it one day. You are going to need these truths to have not just be in your mind, but to have filled your heart one day. Mary in just a, another uh, chapter or so is going to meet a guy that's like, This child will be destined for the rising and falling in many of Israel. And a sword will pierce your own soul also. You're going to need to remember this night. You're going to need to remember the declaration of God over who this baby is. You're going to need to remember the experiences, encounters. And so that's what Mary's doing. is She's storing up in her heart these experiences of God and these truths from God. And meditating on them. And she's going to need him one day as a mother watches her son be pierced brutally 
beaten brutally, killed brutally. And she's going to need Christmas to still be there when that happens. And so she stored them up and she pondered them into her heart. And so as you think about a season that's rushed and busy and buying, take time to store this story back up in your heart. Because you need it all the time. But there's going to be times in your life where you need this truth to be there. This experience, this encounter, what it means to be there. So meditate, ponder, store up Christmas in your heart with wonder. And I promise you there will be times God will unlock that and there will be a need. Last uh, response, the Magi rejoiced and they worshipped. The Magi rejoiced and they worshipped. Um, we'll, we'll just jump right into the, the story as they worshipped. And so the Magi now break on the scene. By the way, I have to do this every year. These guys weren't here while this guy was here. Not true. Okay, just so you're aware. Shepherds, roughly the night of the birth. Magi, probably about a year later. Right? It's not, they don't even come to this place. Right? There aren't any animals there. They go to the house where the child is. Alright, end of rant. So the Magi show up about a year later, and they walk into Jerusalem, and they go up to the king. King! Where's the new king? Not the best path forward. Murderous, killed your own son's king. Could you tell me where the one who has been born king is? Not a good idea. But they do it. And so these wise men come out of the east. And who are the wise men? So... Kind of mysterious figures. These are uh, ancient people that that would have been very pagan, very secular. They would be counselors to kings. They would be king makers for future kings. Um, They would be diviners. And so basically the presidential cabinet only in a very mystical sense. And so what they would do is they would study the stars and and any uh, astrological phenomenon. They would study dreams and dream interpretation. And then they would study just this variety of religious texts that would be in the region, you know, as you've had all these gods and all these religions mixed up. And a lot of times they'd be or, their origin would be in Babylon, and so they would have the ancient text of the Israelites and the ancient text of other religions. And so basically they threw all this together, and they were diviners who would counsel kings and diviners who would kind of coronate new kings. And that's their job. Very pagan. Very secular. And they get up one night and they're like, whoa, that star is not supposed to be there. Major political event on the horizon. Something big's happening. Text, scriptures, dreams, text, different scriptures. Huh, there's this pagan named Balaam in Numbers 24. I see his star, but it's not near. And he's going to have a scepter, a ruler that's going to come up out of Jacob. So a pagan person prophesies about the Messiah. Pagans see the stars and somehow connect the dots. And they're like, something big's happening. The king of the Jews has just been born. And so they load up a caravan, a massive caravan, by the way, not just three. You would not travel ancient roads with three people. You would not survive. And you certainly wouldn't do it with gold in hand. So you have a massive caravan of very elite people walking their way into Jerusalem. Where 
he's the one that's been born king of the Jews. We've come to worship him. And notice this. Herod and the chief priests, they know exactly what's going on. That's the shocking thing. Because the first question he asks is, where is the Christ born? We know that these guys didn't show up for my son who's going to be king one day. These guys showed up to find the Messiah. And the chief priests know that the Messiah. And the scribes know it's Messiah. But look at the different responses. The wise men, the magi, travel a great distance, a very hard distance, while they're just like these chief priests and scribes, they just kind of inquire. And if you look at the kings and the priests, they are troubled. They are unease. It turns into murder and hatred at the end. While the wise men, the magi, are like exceeding, rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And then Herod and the priests turn it into hatred and murder. And the wise men, the pagan, secular Basically, what is it? The what is the like the fortune telling people, like astrologers? I don't know. Psychics, astrologers, they get it. They worship. The people that are supposed to get it totally miss the deal. In fact, they get the deal and hate it and want it dead. While these pagan kingmakers want to meet the real king and worship him. And be transformed by him. And so I would encourage you. Are you one of the ones that should get it? Born in church. Raised in church. Been in church for years. Please don't assume. That Jesus belongs to you. Let him save you. Meet Jesus. And if you're one of the ones that God shouldn't have anything to do with. If you're one of the ones, no church in your background, broken, jacked up home life. There ain't anybody that loves God within a two generations of you. You think, I shouldn't get in. Here's the beauty of God's saving purposes. You're exactly who the grace of God is after. You're exactly the, the one that Christmas came for to rescue. And so if it's the lowly and the poor outcast shepherd, if it's the pagan like fortune telling, these people got killed in the Old Testament kind of people, and anybody in between, the grace of God is for you. Wherever it finds you, the grace of God is for you. Don't assume it if you have the background, and don't you dare think that it can't reach you and be enough for you if you don't. And that's what we see in these wise men. They rejoiced. What's the key word of how people encountered Jesus? Great joy. When they saw this star reappear, great joy. And they fell on their faces before this child. Can you imagine that? Like somebody in the president's cabinet showing up at your house and falling face down in front of like your one-year-old. That's what happened. And they worshipped him. And they offered him their treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Few implications. We'll close out quickly. Come and see. Be saved. The grace of God is for you. Would you recognize your sin? Would you feel God's conviction of your sin? Would you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? 
not your works, not your church, to save you? Would you let him rescue you? He's pursuing you by his Holy Spirit. He's convicting you of your sin. You know in the depths of your heart, in the quiet of the night, that your life does not measure up to the perfect holiness of God. Would you let the Holy Spirit show you? But Jesus does. And he'll rescue you if you'll turn. He'll rescue you if you believe. And then go and tell. People in Sunday school need to hear this story of good news and great joy again. But they all know it. But the joy isn't there. They need to hear it again. They need to hear of Jesus again and Jesus more. And here's what Jesus did. And here's who Jesus Jesus is. And your saved friends need that. Your Sunday school class needs that. Your church friends need that. And the lost need that. Would you always talk about Jesus as much as you possibly can? Spend some time pondering. Fill your heart with this. That's where joy flows out. Is when these truths are pondered and soaked in. And then worship with a fresh passion. Christmas is so much more than sentimental. It's so much more than gifts. It's an old story that should never get old to us. It's good news. Great joy. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray.